Hello and welcome to The Breakdown with Orla Shinnaway and... Greg Rutherford. I thought you were going to say something else there. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Oh, look at that. It's quite simple. Brand new podcast from Eurosport and Discovery. We can still call it brand new, can't we? This is episode three. I think so, yeah. It's pretty, pretty new and pretty exciting. It's been going really well, hasn't it? As I say, this is the third episode. We've had Mark Cavendish. We've had Jamie Chadwick. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those yet, please do. But it's been lovely to finally get these conversations out and to get a little bit of... Well, to build an audience, first of all, which is a privilege, but to get some feedback, which has been lovely, hasn't it? My mints have just dropped on the floor. <laughs> don't need mints for a podcast, but anyway. <laughs> no, it has been brilliant. And, and just again, responses have been lovely. Um, so really, really enjoying it. And it's always a thing, isn't it? When, you, when you're working hard or something, you're trying to bring something that we really love doing and we've had incredible conversations and then other people are responding to it as well. That's fantastic. So I think we're very fortunate it's gone so well. Um, but it's most certainly a lot of hard work from a lot of people to get it here. Yeah, it's been lovely to open it up a little bit. So let's talk about today's guest then. I've been really excited about this podcast, actually. Um, partly because of the guest anyway. Uh-huh. So Chris Hoy, I'll just spoil it already, get it out there. <laughs> One of the most successful Olympians in British history. Um, and now a motor racing driver. And just an incredibly interesting intelligent person so I was looking forward to it anyway um but it became such a personal conversation and one that I wasn't expecting to have even a week before um we were going to talk to him about focus mental focus and how we can all learn lessons from him because it's something that he's renowned for him and it's something I'm fascinated by um but a few days before we sat down to record a very dear friend of mine and of uh Chris's died unexpectedly in his sleep um I'd known for a few days and Chris found out the night before we recorded and I wasn't sure if we would go ahead with the recording or not um and we did and I'm so grateful that we did um because I feel like on a personal level myself and Chris got something very special out of it but it opened up an entirely new conversation that as I say I wasn't expecting and brought a totally different side to Chris to the fore as well, didn't it? Yeah, I think for all of us, never expected to be talking about grief in, in such a way and, and so raw and, and recent. That's the other thing as well. I mean, you can have these conversations with mm. people and their experiences and whatever else, but when it's it's just that second happened and we really saw a, a devastated side, of course yourself as well, but, but Chris, yeah, I, I didn't expect to, to see or witness that and, and it was incredible of him to, to give me some symbol yourself to actually still go through and do something like that. And actually you probably get an even better response in a way because it is that raw. It's all of those mo- emotions you're still trying to process. Um, so to give that time was incredible. But I think for everybody listening, they, they get a real insight into what it's like. And there'll be so many people that have gone through either recently or with, within their lives that will be able to to, to sort of resonate with, with what's said. I think it, it, it was very, very special and, and very deep and, and sort of difficult to listen to at mm. times, to be honest, as well myself, the, the person there that, that didn't know such a wonderful human and to hear how incredible he was, it was made me sort of wish I did know him. Mm. Um, but I think it was, a, it, was a, it was a lovely conversation to still have and I think it will, it will help a lot of people. Yeah, and as you say, it felt like we were listening to and witnessing Chris process the fact that this person who was so big in his life had gone and I do think that's something that is probably very common in grief I've been lucky I've only lost people who um, have died in the normal cycle of life I've never lost someone before their time so I don't know what it's like until now um but it was it was a lovely conversation we moved on from grief it's not all sad it was it was beautiful so um without further ado let's have a little listen then to the breakdown with Sir Chris Hoy.
Chris, welcome Thank you. to our podcast. We are here in London ahead of um, what's supposed to be hopefully a nice glitzy event, the launch of it. I'm impressed with your, um, your studio here. Why, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we don't Is this usually... what you always have? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't invited we to the glitzy event, though. Just I was literally... You were. Unless this, this is... is this is it. Oh, this is <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, fine, this is fine, it. fine. Me and Chris are going to the glitzy event. We're sending you on your way after that. But we'll make this the glitz. But yeah, we... we... We were supposed to really be sitting down and chatting to you about lots of different things. And, and I was really interested to talk to you about mental focus. And um, it's difficult right now because you and I are going through something. Um, we've both lost a very, very, very dear friend of ours this week, um, Richard Moore. And I just... I, yeah, I guess I'm struggling mm -hmm. and I know that you're, you're um, really feeling his loss. And the fact that we've got to go on stage later and smile in front of a room full of people, many of whom knew and loved Richard as well, um, is just really difficult. And I was actually just wondering before you came whether there are any analogies, whether there are any tips you can even give as to how you block I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but how you block out any pain and grief when you've got to crack on with stuff. I don't know. I don't know. It's because in the past, whenever you're, whenever you're trying to focus and the emotion that you're feeling that you're trying to block out is emotion that's distractive emotion or fear or just irrelevant to the task at hand. But when something like this happens and it's, it's really, I'm just, you know, touch wood, very lucky that in my life of, of so few people have, have passed away that this is really unfamiliar territory and still doesn't feel real mm. that it almost feels that you sh you want to let the emotion come out mm. um this isn't that sorry we just stop for a minute of please course, and just... of course i'm sorry oh, okay i thought it'd be all right this i, know, <laughs> I didn't I know. think it was going to be i know Yeah, it's just, it's just really hard, isn't it? It's just really difficult because yeah, uh, you just you can't get your head around the fact you're not going to see him again, and that's that is the the real the real kicker, isn't it? Um, but you know, we got the call yesterday, and you just you suddenly go, you're in shock, and then you suddenly think, well. Maybe it's a mistake. You know, you go through this sort of denial phase of there must be, it must be someone else. It must be um, someone with the same name, a different family that, you know, that it's just, it's not, not for us. Um, someone's got it wrong. Someone's, someone's got, got it wrong. And then you, it slowly dawns on you that, that it is, it is actually happening. It is horrendous. And then your, your, your heart breaks for, for his wife, for Virginie and for his son, Maxime. And you just think, it's just not fair, and and life. It's one of the first things, you know. Going back to, um, back to the sporting experience. One of the first things that Steve Peters ever said to me was, "Life's not fair." You know, why do you expect to be fair? It's not. It's not. You know, you you can stamp your feet and you can you know have a little tantrum, but it's not going to change anything. And the sooner you accept that, the better. And it's but it's it isn't fair, is it? It's but just yeah. it's just so kind of unreal at this stage. He was forty nine, and 48, he, forty eight. Sorry, and and he he passed away in his sleep. You know, for him, he would have known nothing about it, which is the this sort of one mercy of of it all. But for for those left behind, it's just there, there's so many questions. And the worst thing about it for me as well is just 
you immediately think, oh, I wish I'd told him how much mm-hmm. he meant to me. I wish, you know, all the, I just had so much respect and love for the guy. He was just an amazing individual, amazing human being. And, you know, we had so many fun times and, you know, racing trips and he was there for all the big races. And one of the first people you saw after, you know, you finish your race, you come down to the track centre and there's the, you know, all the journalists are there. And he's the one you go to speak to first because, well, he's the one that's been with you from, from day one. In fact, he was the first journalist that I ever did an interview with for Cycling Weekly. Aww. So me and Craig were, I think we're about like 19 and 22 or something, you know, just at the very start of our career. He was from Edinburgh. He was still cycling at that point. He was a teammate at that point too at the Commonwealth Games. And um, he did a little article about these two sprinters from Scotland who were trying to make it onto the British team and following the footsteps of... Stuart Bryden and Eddie Alexander from the City of Edinburgh Racing Club. And, you know, he lived, or his, his mum and dad lived just like about five minutes away from my mum and dad's house. Um, and little did I know then that our lives would sort of be intertwined through his career, going from a, an athlete into becoming a journalist and then writing books. And he wrote my autobiography mm. with me. We did Heroes, Villains and Velodromes together. Um, he came out to, to Bolivia to the, the world record attempt in La Paz. and Children of a similar age as sim- well. Similar age. And yeah, it's just, it's just unfathomable what's happened. And it just, you know, I know that every day people are losing people. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't make it any easier. You know, you just, and the one thing you think, well, geez, if he knew, you know, if you, if you knew when your time was coming, you would just not worry about all the little stupid things that stress you out and, and um, you know, that, that are so trivial. You look back and think, God, you know. I know. What's the point? But, yeah. It's a reality here, isn't it? Every single time <clears throat> that happens, just puts all of everything, of the smallest things, all into perspective. Mm. And that's the biggest thing. I think f- through sport, I, I had a very similar situation at the, the, the 2008 Olympics. And it was absolutely brutal just before I left losing my granddad and having to try and deal with the first person I'd ever let, uh, lost in my life. And then trying to deal with everything through it. Like you said, life isn't fair, everything else, but it is one of those things, isn't it? It doesn't get any easier, but with time, you then start to accept, you never move on, but you you, you deal with it. And it's, for you guys, it's how I, I didn't know the guy, but from all accounts, sounded like an incredibly wonderful human. Um, and for somebody like myself, I've only really ever lost one very close person to me, that was back in 2008. It's just one of those things that from... The, the sadness eventually just comes all of those moments of joy that you always spent together. And that was that was always the big thing that I sort of latched onto and I attempted to latch onto um, when I first had it. But as I say, time goes on, it definitely never easier. But it, you just, you learn, I think, to, to adapt slightly in that way. But how did you get through that in 2008 then? Because, you know, I reference the fact that it's it's tiny. It's not the Olympic Games. We've just got to launch. We've just got to stand on stage later and smile and be excited about something that is exciting, you know, but we've got to, We've got to pretend that that's the only emotion that we're feeling right then, instead yeah. of this this like gaping hole, this black hole of grief mm-hmm. that and confusion and shock. How how did you deal with that as you're in the biggest stage of your life as it was then? Uh, well, badly for me. Um, <laughs> sadly, I, I, I was a very young man at the time as well. I like to say twenty one. I now feel significantly older, obviously mm-hmm. now. Um, and and I didn't really know what to do with it. I sadly missed a funeral and something that I massively regret. Actually, I left to go to Beijing rather than going to the funeral first, which I to this day eats, eats me up a little bit so it's a really difficult thing when you have other pressures that was always the big thing as an athlete especially as a young athlete as external pressures often put on you to do certain things and act a certain way um so that was a massive regret for me and with obviously age i think it, it would have been very different if it, if it was if it was of course mm. now um but look, i 
for me, it was it was difficult, very, very difficult. I, I didn't know what to do with myself. And of course, you're then thrown into the, the biggest stage of life. That was my first Olympics. Um, and it was badly. That's the only way to put it. I, I, I remember, never forget standing in the stadium. And this actually, this came through in different parts of my career, actually. I'd stand in the stadium and, and I was just looking for a sign because with the tragedy of what taken place, my thought process was, well, of course, what happened now would be a fairy tale ending. Mm-hmm. I'll go to the Olympic Games, I'll win a medal, even though nobody expected me to win a medal. And it'd be this amazing thing for my family for us to then go and deal with and whatever else and, and celebrate something that was from so sad to positive. And it was the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. And, th- and this is always the big thing, I think, in life in, in general. It's not just sport in all life. The fairy tale that you're, you're hoping for and you believe and you see is very rare. Mm-hmm. It it's mm-hmm. really is very rare. So for me, I ended up finishing 10th in that final. So I was looking for numbers and scoreboards. I'd look at the scoreboard and I'd go, oh, well, if that person runs that race and their final number is finishes in a 30-something, <laughs> I'm going to jump 8.30. And it was bizarre. So I'd lost all, I hadn't lost focus as such, but I'd lost all grip on what normality was in a competition state. Um, but I think obviously with, with, with age and experience and everything else and actually not having sport and yourself not having sport, you have an opportunity now to be around <sighs> and do something like mourning, I guess, properly. Maybe that, that's, that's the thing. So... I'm, I'm a terrible example of how to deal with something like that situation in sport because it didn't go well for me. But if anything, I'd prefer to go through it now, if that makes sense, mm. just so I feel like I would understand how to how to do it a little bit more. But of course, it's always brutally hard. Well, that's almost what you were saying though, Chris, that sometimes, you know, we put on a face and, and obviously you're going to think, well, I must go to the Olympic Games. I've been selected and it's my first Olympic Games. Um but you were saying it to me just before we started recording and, and alluded to it just now as well. Sometimes we we shouldn't. We just shouldn't battle through it. We actually we should actually just yeah. sit with our grief and allow yeah. ourselves and to, to to accept it. That it's unfair. That life yeah. is hard, and that's yeah. Because in one okay. sport, you you know you are desperately trying to focus on the logic of it, of the process of what you need to do to get the best performance. You don't know if it's going to give you the the result that you want. You don't know if it's going to win the medal but you just want to produce the best performance that you're capable of on the night when it counts and wait and see what, what that results in at the end of the day. But it, this is, this feels so much, you know, I feel like you need to let the grief out. You need to let it wash over you because it's bottling up. Isn't good. You know, it's, it's, you know, you need to have these emotions and it's a lot of people who I've talked about, like Steve Peters changed my life and, and had a huge impact in my career, but just not just my career on, on the way I see things in general. And, when I talk about the work that, that I've done with him and the help it had, you know, the, the benefit it gave me in, in competition and in stressful situations, sometimes people come back and say, well, is it not really a bit odd that you're, you know, you're sort of turning into a robot and you're, you know, you're very focused and, and you, there's no emotion, it's all logic. And it's not that at all. So he's not trying to create or help you create a, a robotic state where you go around feeling completely in control all the time. Because that would be horrific. It would be awful. Yeah. 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 Because you're not, I mean, because emotions you're not human. are life. You're That's what human. it is. Yeah. Exactly. So it's about giving you the skills to be able to refocus. So when you lose focus, you can't maintain focus for 24 hours a day. It's about focusing in that minute or two minutes yeah. or 10 seconds that you need to. And if you get a distraction, if something happens just before you're about to, you know, if you're a tennis player just about to serve and there's a noise or a distraction, refocus you've got yeah. some technique that you know initially in the early days it takes you minutes or even an, an hour to get yourself in that state mentally to be really focused but with a, with a lot of practice and with a lot of help from steve i was able to just to refocus in in the blink of a night mid-race something could happen in a race in a kieran for example where you, it's very physical very 
unpredictable. You can have a, a, a clash of shoulders or something could happen that could throw you and could make you angry and make you want to retaliate and do something stupid, which would then throw away the race. But it's about in that blink of an eye refocusing. It's okay, that's happened. What can I do now? And so what is that practice then? Sorry, Greg, because I wanted to ask you as well. <laughs> you said how you, you've had to teach yourself that, but what, what have you practiced over the years to make you refocus in that moment? Because it sounds impossible. That's the problem well, with losing focus. To start with, it's visualisation. So it's, it's focusing on what you, or understanding what you have control over, accepting what you don't have control over, not thinking about the end result, not thinking about fear of failure, of what this goes wrong, not thinking about how amazing it would be to win and to become Olympic champion, to achieve your dream. Like you're saying, I could win this for my grandpa, I could do that, you know, wouldn't it be the fairytale ending? You know, positive, um, or thinking about a positive outcome can be as distracting as mm -hmm. thinking about a negative outcome. Or the, More the, so the, sometimes, Yeah, exactly, exactly. So for me, it was understanding what I had control over, what, what can you do in this situation, um, whether it's leading into the competition, mentally warming up, focusing on visualizing the perfect race. As you visualize, as you think about one thing, there's no space for anything else to come into your brain at that one time. So, you know, you might think you can multitask and think about lots of things, but actually your brain is dotting about from one thing to the other. So if you, for me, like in, in Athens, when I was riding the kilo, when I was aiming to become Olympic champion for the first time, and I was waiting for my one shot, you don't get, there's no heats, there's no qualification, one chance, and your rivals one by one are breaking the world record before you go. And your brain really wants to panic and go, oh my God, that's faster than anyone's ever gone before. It's a new world record. I, you know, I, I can't get close to that. But before those thoughts take hold, it's, well, I've got no control over that. So I'm going to visualize the perfect race. All I can do now is visualize this race, how I want it to go, the process of how it's going to feel. And they can do their thing. And I'm going to step on the start line, regardless of what they've done, whether it's been amazing times or not so amazing, is irrelevant. I'm here to do the job, the best job I can. When I cross the line, I look at the scoreboard and I'll see where I am. Um, it's different in the Kieran or the sprint where you're reacting to other people, but the principle is the same because it's, if you can take control, if you can be the one that's dictating the tactics, if you can be the one that's initiating the process of what you're trying to do, you give yourself the best chance. But the bottom line is people who go into races saying, yeah, I'm going to win today or we're going to win this match, or, they're talking nonsense. You, you, you don't know. <laughs> do you say you did that? London, though. Well, no, well, it's really interesting on that point. No, it really is. because So for me, the way I mentally dealt with something like London is mental rehearsal became a hugely important thing. So I never had a steep or anybody, or anybody getting behind me to sort of help with that side of thing. I never saw anybody that did it. All of mine was sort of self-taught. But what I did do... Did you every, read or did you no, teach no, I, no, experience? No, just for experience, purely for experience. Look, the first half of my career was crap. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was rubbish. But we uh, learned well, more from losing it, than we do no, from No, but this you know. did, look, I, I lost a thousand times more than I ever won. But what was so important leading into London is that every single day I'd walk into the woods behind my house with my dogs and every day I would mentally rehearse winning the Olympic champ, uh, title. And what I did, I created every form of scenario that could possibly take place. And I would basically live commentate on my own performance. So I would be out there walking around and I would have other competitors that I knew would be there. And I was doing this for the years leading up. So competitors obviously change everything else. But one of them would make go out and jump really far. And it was like, I had to go and react. And oh, I reacted. Is this just as you're walking? Or it's just while I'm walking around. So, but I, and I always find this, I, I love being around people, everything else, but I also love time on my own where I get to think. And I always come up with my best and probably worst plans <laughs> while, I'm, while I'm on my own walking about with the dogs. But it helped so much because nothing was a surprise. But it was really interesting. No matter what happened, every time, no, no matter if, if I've 
pretending somebody broke a world record or did whatever else. The outcome was always the same and the outcome was me winning. So I went out, when I went into the Olympic final, look, fundamentally you don't know. And I wasn't going there going, I'm definitely going to win. What I said to myself was, this is mine to lose. Mm. Because mentally I was prepared, physically I was prepared. I knew the situation and what was going on. So it was down to me to go out there and perform the best I can. But equally, winning, everything in there, every scenario had been played in my head already. So by that point, it felt like it was, it was my opportunity. What, what if you'd broken the, world, the pre-existing world record, you'd done your greatest performance ever, and someone had gone a centimetre further than that, though. But would that not... I mean, I know that no. the, I know that it's about the medals. I know that we're conditioned to the winner gets the gold medal, and that's what you're, you're striving for. But there's times when I underperformed and would win at a World Cup, and I would come away disappointed with that. And other times where you genuinely had done the best... It, at that time, you wouldn't go, oh, I'm delighted with a silver or a bronze, you know, you know, this is what I want. Of course it isn't. But I would go away and say, I'm going to come back and work harder. It's going to motivate me. But at the moment... This is a reflection of where I am, and you know I've got to be happy with this performance. So are you saying you visualised the, the your performance, best performance? Only you visualised the, the result. The result was mm. for me was definitely when it came to London, anyway. So first and foremost, if anybody ever did anything better, instantly my head just flicked straight to, well, I'll jump further than them. That was that was just my default. After well, after I started becoming partially successful, anyway, that was my default. I didn't didn't care what anybody did. And actually, I think that probably affected my competitors a lot more than it ever affected me because there was a period of time, probably for four or five years. Now, my good patch was much shorter than yours. But during <laughs> that period, I would turn up to competitions and I could already see competitors were concerned because it, there was a situation, it went on for a long time. Look, I didn't always win them. I mean, I got beaten loads mm. of times, but the ones that really mattered, there was this level of self-belief in it. No, no matter what anybody else did, I could respond and it didn't matter. Bear in mind, this is based off of nothing because i didn't jump anywhere near the world record so from my point of view it, it was physically unlikely but in my head it was believable and i think because of that i probably gave over an air of, of people thinking he feels he feels good today and i was always mm. i was always smiling i was always happy smiling That's, is such a such an important part of it massive and it's one of the things you know first of all there's a there is a physiological response to smiling if you even a forced smile if you smile then it has this sort of, you know... They're all it It does release endorphins. It has a, it does, a, yeah. a chemical effect on your body. Um, and it, so Steve would say to us, first of all, smile. You know, you're choosing to do this. This is, this is not... You're not going to the gallows. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to the gallows. This is not... You know, and there's times where you get so, so caught up in the importance of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying, look, you're riding bikes in anti-clockwise circles <laughs> on a wooden track. It's yeah. not life and death. You're choosing to do this. This is your hobby that has become a career. You've got an amazing opportunity here. If you don't win, the world's not going to stop revolving. Just go out there, express yourself on the bike. Don't think about the end result. Be the best you can be, and you will perform the best you can. Whether you win or not, I can't guarantee that, but that's how you'll get the best out of yourself. But when you smile, the other side, as you've already alluded to, is that your competitors notice you're smiling. Yeah. And they think, well, what's he smiling about? Yeah. <laughs> he must be confident. Yeah. And, it, and you know, you come in the track center, big smile on, you know, saying hello to everybody. Yeah, I, and they're all like, oh, God. He, absolutely. Oh, no, he's, he's <laughs> obviously going well. You know, well, exactly. And, and, you know, and then you start to believe, you know, you sort of fake it till you make it. You start to believe that you're massively. Well, actually, do you know what? I am feeling good. And this is the Olympics. And all the hard work is done now. I'm not having to do... 20 sprints or 10 sprints and I'm not going to be thrown up in a bucket, you know, having a horrible day training. <laughs> this is this is the reward. This it's is the reward thing, for yeah. all the hard work. So I am going to enjoy this regardless of what happens. 
And if I enjoy it, I'll give myself the best chance of winning. Yeah, I, fa I found massively, uh, 2014 was an interesting one. We were talking about smiling and everything else. And we talked about the endorphin release. I remember getting ready for the Commonwealth Games. So there was, there was comms and Europeans really close together. And I basically said, right, my aim this year is to try and win them both. And it was like, you can't do it. But what I found, I remember being in the village in Glasgow and I'd started reading online text message fails, right? And I was there for, for hours, just right, obviously like Shuffling trying to text No, but I was like crying with laughter. <laughs> and this was the bit, and there was something within it that made me feel so good. And it's exactly that, mm. the endorphin release, and everything mm. that you do get from smiling and, and laughing. But equally going to the stadium, and, I, and way before, years before, my first ever real big championships where I actually won a, a medal Europeans in 2006, I remember sitting in the cool room and looking around and having that moment young, I was really lucky to have that moment young, of going, this is amazing, isn't it? Mm. And I was like, smiling. I remember sitting, just sort of sitting back, just going, isn't this brilliant? <laughs> and I could yeah. see my competitors looking at me going, what's he smiling about? Yeah. Why is he smiling? And instantly, and I, it was just a reaction from them that I thought, there's something going on here, something mm. different. So then when things got a bit better and post-2012 in particular for me, it was brilliant. And exactly the same as mm. I really like hearing other athletes that did this. So <laughs> I'd go, I'd, again, I'd well, well, go, hey, you're doing really good yeah. to see you get ready for Olympic what? final. Yeah. He's like, yeah. shaking out, great, so I haven't seen you in a few months. How's it all been going? <laughs> yeah. you seen, but would, but were you on? genuinely happy as well? Though? Because I'm thinking about how you, how you would transition this, how you would learn from this and apply it to normal life. Because most people do not have a field of competition to thrive in or fail in, you know, and for most people it's the office or it's the job yeah, interview. Yeah, that, that is a place to thrive and, mm. and to succeed, 100%. Then how, do you, how do you then, how do you apply that visualisation technique, I guess, to normal life? Because a lot of normal life success is judged on outcome, you know, and if you if you talk to people who are into manifesting, for example, people are always manifesting the end result, not the process to get there. Mm. They want that book deal <laughs> yeah. or X number of followers or that job promotion or whatever it might be. Yeah. So how do you then apply that to your normal normal life? Neither of you are normal, let's be perfectly honest. But it, it doesn't matter what you do. So, you know, I apply to things I do now in my life. If I'm doing a talk on stage and there could be 5,000 people, it doesn't happen very often, but, you know, there could be a, 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 a big event where, you know, you, you're asked to come and say a few words at an event and you and it's a big audience and, and you've prepared a keynote speech and you start to get the pre-event nerves and you, it's it's very similar to that feeling of competition and, and, and part of me is thinking, oh, no, what if I forget what I'm talking about? What if I fluff mm. it? What if I go off topic? You know, and that I've can got... be enough to throw you there. Yeah, Visualising yeah. the thing going wrong yeah. makes and, the thing go wrong. And then you, you start drawing, you're going down this rabbit hole of, of oh my God, it's going to go, it's going to go terribly. This is, or the audience, you know, I, I can hear they're not really responding well to the person that's on before me. Or And, and before that, those negative thoughts take hold. I think, do you know what? I'm, I've been asked to come here. They're an audience that are, you know, I'm not trying to win them over. It's... It's an easy job I've got. Mm. If you're someone out there mm. trying to deliver bad news or convince a group of people to, to do something they don't want to do, then you've got a tough gig. Or, you know, if you're a stand-up comic that's walking in, you know, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. a you know, tough crowd, they're sitting there with their arms folded waiting for you to make them laugh. <laughs> Whereas you go in and you get a, you know, a little montage video, you get a round of applause. Oh, yeah, I remember London. <laughs> oh, London was great. Oh, yeah, who's this guy? The cyclic. Oh, yeah, I, remember, I think I remember him. And, it's, and you kind of, you get this positive energy. You go, oh, this is great. And not, not everybody's going to have a great experience before they start doing what they're about to do. But if you can go in there and be prepared, pre being, like for me, preparation was absolutely central. I used to have terrible times at school if I, was, if I hadn't revised for exams. I'd go in there and have these terrible moments of, I should have, I should have, 
prepared for this. I'm an idiot. I should have done more. I can tell you that was and, my entire school life. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it didn't it's, go well for me. So it basically became this, this right your future self. What would you say to your future self? What would your future self say to you, you know, after this race or after this speech or after this event, whatever it is, this presentation at work or whatever your, you know, a big thing that's coming up, it's like, just do the preparation. Yeah, you can't guarantee it's going to be brilliant. You can't guarantee you're going to get the outcome you want, but do the work. Be prepared as Baden-Powell would say, and um, yeah. you know, and and just give it your best shot because not everyone can win the gold medal, no. and and you can't, you know, you can go out there and say, yeah, if you do this, you're going to win the gold medal. You're not, you know, you, not everybody. There's only one person in that final can get that gold medal, and you know, all the guys in your final will have trained bloody Absolutely, hard. Of course, they will all on their day be as good as anybody else in the world. One person gets that that gold medal, and that's why it's so special. And you know, we teach our kids about you know, go out there and just enjoy yourself and work hard. You, you can't say to them you're going to win if you if you are the best if you are you know if you try your hardest you're going to win because it doesn't work because that as way. Steve Peter says life is unfair. Well, life is unfair, <laughs> and it's and but the, my point is that you have to enjoy the process. So the reward is the process. The reward is doing what you love doing, and if you get the gold medal at the end, it's the cherry on top of the cake. It's amazing, but it's really hard to learn that in life. But it is. Though. But it, it took me so long to get that. You know, I used to you know what was it? Comparison is the thief of joy. Mm looking at what other people are doing, looking at their performances, cons consistently measuring yourself against them, looking at what they're doing in their lives, what are the Instagram, you know, fear of missing out, all the, comparing yourself to the people is the worst thing you can do. Absolutely. And I did it. I used to do it in training. I used to, we had a little um, training book that the coach would write the times down. So you do, you know, old school, not, none of the computers <laughs> back in those days. It was a stopwatch and a book and they would write the times down. And in the team, you'd have guys like Jason Queeley, Craig McLean, Jamie Staff, Jason Kenny in later years, um, Ross Edgar, you know, real world-class sprinters who were your teammates, but you were competing against yes, them. Right, and yeah. they were fighting for a place to either might be one spot in the Olympics amongst you. So you're constantly competing. And in the early years, I would be looking at their times. I'd finish my effort, come over, look at my time, and then compare it to theirs, which you might think, well, that's natural. Mm. But the point is that what if they're having a good day or a bad Absolutely. day? It's going to affect your, you know, you're reflecting it on yourself. Oh, I'm beating him. That's great. Maybe he's got a cold. Maybe he's mm. got an injury. Maybe he's not feeling that great. Or he's faster than me. Oh no, you know, he's he's always going to he's, he's starting to get better now. And maybe he's having an amazing day, or he's rested, or whatever. You, you just don't know what's going on. Yeah, so it's your control, controlling the controllables. That is always a big thing. I think it's important, probably in life as well. So it was always tells about that's when I had the, the, a younger group that I was training with, and I became sort of the older guy. They became obsessed with seeing what other people's times would be. And we're talking say April or May. It's human nature as well, no, the, the, the problem is to then allow that to affect you and turn it turn your day into a negative day or your session into a negative session based upon something that somebody's doing 2,000 miles away mm. in another competition. It, 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 it doesn't have... So, what you again, you have to learn to control what you do. So, if you turn up to work, the track or whatever it is, you can only influence what you do now. Unless somebody's obviously coming over and attacking you or whatever. Else. <laughs> yes, they're getting in your way a little bit. But if you go in every single day think, I will do the best that I can do, irrespective of what others are doing, you start to learn. And I think, I believe you, you develop a level of, of, of strength, if you like, to actually just deal with what you're doing each day. And yet we're consolidating and strengthening this, this feeling within society, within ourselves, that comparison is the only form of validation, yeah. as yeah. you say, with Instagram, with social yeah. media and for our kids, that's what it's going to be. If you don't have enough likes in your blinking picture yeah. or you don't have enough followers. Yeah. So how do you teach kids and through teaching the kids ourselves 
to be strong enough in whatever it is that we're doing without caring what other people think, because what other people think has never mattered more. Well, it, uh, to me, it, it's the only person you should compare yourself to is yourself yesterday. And seeing if you're making progress. I was a mess yesterday. If you're you're doing all right today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was a mess <laughs> 10 minutes. Crying. That was a mess yeah. 10 minutes ago, so I'm doing better. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, like my wee boy Callum does Taekwondo. He's been doing it for about two or three months now. He goes twice a week enjoys it he's not super sport he's not really mad keen on sport mm -hmm. but this is one thing he's shown an interest in so we take him there twice a week and he said to me i, I said oh you did really well today and he said daddy i'm really bad at taekwondo <laughs> and i was like you're not bad at he said i'm, I'm not as good as so-and-so and i'm not mm -hmm. good so i said but you're better than you were last week weren't you and he's like yeah he said yeah. you're kicking higher than you were you're you're learning the moves. You can count to five in Korean. You can. He's like, oh, oh yeah, I can't. You know. So That's it's. Need it's my life coach. <laughs> <laughs> these things, and I'm having a bad day. But it's but it is about comparing yourself to where you were. You know, if you're making progress, and everybody improves at different rates, particularly when we're kids. So as a kid, you know, I used to play rugby. I used to do other sports, and in rugby in particular, I was probably the second smallest in the team. I played standoff. You know, I was fly half, and I was the kicker. So I used to take the kick off, and I would restart the match, kick the ball, and I would have this uncanny ability of landing it in the arms of the biggest guy <laughs> in their team, who then would run straight back at me. And I'd stand there thinking, oh, God, it's happening again. It's coming, it's Shut coming. your eyes, and you get taken out by this giant, of you know, a six-foot-tall 12-year-old with yeah. a moustache. And, and <laughs> there was always so, one of them, weren't there? Yeah, there was every always, team, every, every team. team. And that's the point. So think about this guy who gets, oh, I'm great at rugby because I score four tries mm. every match. And you know, everyone, I'm the, I'm the star player of the team. And then over the years, everyone else catches up. He might have just hit puberty at the age of 12 or whatever. And all of a sudden, he hasn't had to learn all the skills. And you know, he's been so strong physically and bigger and, and, and just have that advantage that he doesn't enjoy rugby because he's not scoring four tries a game anymore. And he gives up. So it, to me, it's, it's trying to get the message across to, to kids or to my kids or anyone that listen that you just... Be better than you were yesterday. Look at your own progression. Don't worry about anyone else. If you're still improving, that's all you can ask for. And trying to enjoy the process and enjoy what you do because what's the point otherwise? Yeah. Amazing, Chris. Thank you. What is the point otherwise? <laughs> I just want to ask just really quickly because you mentioned Steve Peters saying how life is unfair and you have to accept it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm keen to get um, closure on that. <laughs> how do you make your peace with that? I think you put yourself in the position of Richard and you think, what would he what would he want right now? What would he be wanting us to do? Would he be wanting us to sit around feeling utterly heartbroken or would he want us to be sitting around talking, telling stories about all the stupid stuff we got up to, all the amazing places we went to, the places that he saw, the things that he did, reading his books. I mean, he's what a life he's led to have all this, this you know, amazing array of work that he's done, which, you know, Maxime can read when he's older when he can you know you can he's left a legacy behind which is an amazing thing to have we all would have a legacy of different scales of whatever we're into whatever line of work or whatever our hobbies are but to have something that you can physically pick up and go my my dad wrote this and you know isn't that an amazing thing for Richard so yeah, be there for for, for um, Virginie and for Maxime and and for all his friends and let's just enjoy telling stories about his life beautiful Chris thank you Thank you. What a beautiful conversation that was with Sir Chris Hoy. And even watching it back and listening to it back, I feel like I got more from it mm. the second time and the third time because I've listened to it a few times now. And, and I feel like what he said about being better 
today than you were yesterday. That has come back to me over and over again in all the littlest ways, like even when parenting, for example, because that's the one thing that is no achievable end to it, you know, and it's the most difficult job in the world, I think. But sometimes I think, okay, well, if I'm a little bit more patient today than yesterday, or usually I project it forward to tomorrow, I think it's not too bad today. I can be more patient with them tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it comes back to me a lot, that one. No, I think look, it's just not stressing about seeing that the ultimate perfect end product. Everybody's obsessed with it, aren't they? What it should mm. look like at the end, but that process of getting there. I think the way Chris put it together, it was utterly perfect and, and similar. I've even been talking to people about him saying that, mm-hmm. and I think it really has. And there'll be a lot of people that have just watched that and listened and gone, wow, that makes complete and utter sense. And I think it's just trying to take away some of that pressure from you. Every single day, there's so much thrown at us through social media, through expectations that we have on the school run, as you say, with parenting and things. There's so much out there. But actually focusing on yourself and the little things, and actually, as I said, being better than you were the day before, moving on from that, etc. It's it's a brilliant way of doing it. And I think it's worked incredibly well. I think it's one of the hardest things of modern life is losing that expectation. And trying not to see yourself through the eyes of others, but but seeing your own worth for how you are and judging yourself by your own standards rather than anybody else's standards. Yeah, and, and, and it is the issue now, isn't it? Everywhere you turn, there is something that's trying to ram something else down mm. your throat or the perfect idea of what other people see or choose to let you see as what is perfect. And that's what we need to be really mindful of, I think. We, we have to actually step away from all of that and and know that every single person, doesn't matter their situation, they'll have bad days, things won't go well, but as long as we can all develop and try and be better each day, mm. it's a great way of looking. Never ever focus on what everybody else is doing, just worry about yourself. Yeah, and better by your own standards, not by anybody else's standards. Um, well, speaking of better, um, we did have um, our latest instalment of our own little competition where we're trying to better each other. When we say take that weight of expectation off your shoulders, I mean, that all goes out the window when it comes to rock, paper, scissors, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this rock, paper, scissors. I'm not saying because I won or anything like no that. No spoiler alert, No spoiler, no, but it's just Chris's reaction yeah. to this. The, but not his reaction, his approach well, to Well, yeah, him trying to get... Well, you'll see. There's a little bit of mind games maybe going on this one. It's a very exciting rock, paper, scissors, shall we say. There is a reason that Sir Chris Hoy became so successful. And a lot of it was in how he approached things, his methodology and trying to psych his Mm. rivals out of it. Did it work, though? That's the question. Let's see. So I would love Tears, to give a sting, running. soggy paper. <laughs> this is how to lift our mood if we, yeah. can, okay. if we can win okay. rock, paper, scissors. Right. Right. I'm just going to visualise me winning. <laughs> I was thinking that. It's not about, it's <laughs> not about the winning. I'm, I don't care whether I win or not. It's the process of unfurling my paper. <laughs> Mind game stuff. Very good. Can, paper, I just, can I just say before we do this, Chris was trying to convince us earlier that there is a technique yes. to rock, paper, scissors. And it's all in the in the split second before you play your hand and you can see the other person. And we did a little trial and I beat you. So it doesn't work. I'm just going to say paper, okay? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you will, don't! Don't! You will find, by the way, okay, this is one of the most important things in the world to all of Yeah, like, it, genuinely. Because it's so important. I'm sitting down with multiple Olympic paper. champions. <laughs> we just think paper. And it's the only thing <laughs> I can ever take as my legacy, beating Olympians at anything. <laughs> No, it does matter to okay. me. It should matter to you. Right, okay. you ready? Okay. Go. Okay. Right, okay. Rock, Rock paper, paper, scissors, scissors shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Chris Hoy! Damn you! We got it. I make out as if it was some sort of... <laughs> oh. <laughs> she fell for it. 
Greg didn't. Well, I thought. <laughs> like, he's not going to do paper after Of course he's that. not. <laughs> Good game, guys. Well done, mate. Good game. Oh, thank, well, you. thank you. Thank you. Oh, congratulations. I didn't celebrate like that when I became Olympic champion. Maybe <laughs> 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 he does mean it. <laughs> thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> oh, I'm livid. I thought, what can I do then? What can I do? I got in your head, though. Properly. Yeah, you, you were fun.